0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You
1: know, I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Mowi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moey Salmon is available ready-to-eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street
2: Radio from PRX. <laughs> When we came from our country, we expected to stay for 15, 20 days, one month, but we did not expect
1: to stay five years. That was the sound of a bakery, not in Damascus or Amman, but in a large Syrian refugee camp in Jordan. Employing 25 family members, the pastries are so good that Jordanians often drive an hour more just to buy them. Inside the camp, reporter Amy Gutman discovered a brave new world including 3,000 thriving businesses, shipping containers turned into homes, pizza delivery, and even wedding dress shops. This is not just a study in human resilience, it's also a study in human aspiration. This week, we also take a look at Vietnamese cooking through the eyes of a cookbook author who left the country one week before the fall of Saigon. First, I chat with Raina Javeri about this week's Milk Street recipe. Okay, Rena. this week it's scrambled eggs, simple enough. But I was looking at something called the Basque Book, a cookbook, and it had a recipe for scrambled eggs that used two eggs and a tablespoon of oil, not butter. So we wondered whether actually olive oil might be a better choice, a better marriage with scrambled eggs than butter is.
2: That's right, Chris. At Milk Street, we look outside for inspiration, and we found, in fact, that in many places around the world, people use oil instead of butter to cook their eggs. It turns out butter is not better. The Chinese do it, the Japanese. um, In India, in the Middle East, they cook their eggs in oil. And it turns out that when cooked with olive oil, the eggs are fresher and lighter out of the pan and not greasy or heavy the way they can be with butter. So, Chris, there's two things that matter about this method, the amount and the temperature of the oil. The amount for two eggs in an 8- or 9-inch skillet, we use about a tablespoon of oil. And the temperature of the oil also is important – um, we make sure that we preheat the pan, so we put our oil in our pan, put it over medium heat, and allow it to warm slowly until the oil just starts to smoke. And this is the exact moment that we want to put our eggs in the pan or they won't puff up properly, and there's a reason for that.
1: There is a reason, and it's the science of butter versus oil. Butter contains 20% water, which means it doesn't get very hot until that water boils off. Oil, however, will get hotter faster faster, When it starts to smoke, which is our visual clue, it's about 380 degrees, much hotter than butter at 212, and that takes the water in the eggs and immediately turns them into steam, which puffs up the scrambled eggs, making them lighter and fluffier.
2: And one last note, Chris, the technique and the timing matter as well. You want to make sure you pour the eggs into the center of the pan, and this pushes some of the oil out to the perimeter. And then that cooks the edges of the eggs first, which also makes them much, much lighter.
1: So there you go. We thought we knew everything about scrambled eggs. It turns out we knew nothing. Don't use butter with scrambled eggs. Use extra virgin olive oil. Get it really hot, and you get light, fluffy scrambled eggs. Thanks, Raina. Thanks, Chris. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Also, our shows are available on iTunes. Coming up, we visit a refugee camp in Jordan where a group of entrepreneurial Syrians have established a successful bakery. I also reveal why carbon steel is my new favorite nonstick pan. But right now, it's time to talk to Andrea Nguyen. You know, I visited Vietnam 10 years ago and fell in love with the lemongrass, with the clams, the banh mi, the roadside stalls, the mango and papaya, the salads, the hot, sweet, salty, and bitter. Andrea Nguyen is the author of the Banh Mi Cookbook, for her, Vietnamese cooking is not just about ingredients or the French influence or the uniquely Vietnamese palate. It's about cooking thoughtfully with intent. I started by asking Andrea about how she and her father found a way out of Saigon during the very last days of the war. I, I read somewhere that you were airlifted out of Saigon. You were fortunate enough to get out in an easier way than some people. So, so what actually happened? How did you manage to get out of the country?
0: Well, we left um, one week before the fall of Saigon, which, um, you know, things completely fell apart at the end of April in 1975. And my father had been watching the international news. He'd been monitoring things for a while and knew that things were falling apart. And so he had arranged with a number of other families to purchase and renovate a cargo boat so that we could all escape by sea. Yeah, and then in April of seventy-five, when word came out that the government was halting all private boats from leaving the Saigon harbor, he changed tactics and ran all over town trying to find someone—an American—and all Americans in Saigon at that time were basically like CIA or you know worked with the State Department in some kind of manner, and no one would bring us out. And in the end, the person who enabled us to put together fake paperwork so that we could get into the airport in saigon was a man who had worked for the u.s state department and my aunt was one of his colleagues and he had come back to saigon in april of 75 to bring out as many vietnamese families as he could that he knew and he was willing to include our family in that group
1: and how old were you at the time
0: I was six years old, and you know, it's. Um, I was so scared because all that time I was going with my father to look at the boat, and we would talk about escaping. And my mother was sewing life vests in the house at, late mm. at night. And of course, she tore all those life vests apart when we learned that we were going to be leaving by plane. The past is always still with us. Uh, now we're going to turn to food.
1: This is something you said that was really interesting. You say Vietnamese cuisine doesn't use spices as extensively as Malay or Indonesian cuisines. And then you say Vietnam was not part of the ancient spice route. But I, I never thought about that, that you were not part of the spice route.
0: Yeah. The the spice route really had to deal with Indonesia and um, other parts of Southeast Asia. Vietnam's funny because it's such a long country, right? And its, it's um, coastline is about as long as the eastern seaboard in the U.S. And there was a lot of things to trade, but not necessarily spices. And so for the Vietnamese, it has always been like this culture that has evolved from absorbing a lot of experiences with foreign entities. The Japanese and, you know, the Portuguese and the French and the Chinese eh, were like in that little town of Hoi An. And in the north, you know, there was all of this Chinese migration back and forth, you know, and and then you've got like the the Thais and the Khmers and just you know going coming from the west. So it's this unusual amalgam of ideas, and I think that that makes Vietnamese cuisine a little bit hard to pinpoint.
1: So fish sauce. Let's talk fish sauce. Fish sauce is fish sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a
0: terrible translation into. English isn't it?
1: It is but it but it really is like you know fish and salt that's left to ferment uh, but you, you you mentioned there are three different grades in Vietnam. could you could you talk about that?
0: Sure. there's fish sauce that you would use for cooking and then there is fish sauce that you would use for um, dipping at the table. And those are two different grades. And so nowadays in the states, what we mostly hear of in you know like food media and the food arati, it's all about like this high grade um, which is like the first pressing. So, for example, you did you uh, just wait have,
1: Did you just say first pressing?
0: Yeah, well, okay. I love first, that. Like- well,
1: I'm just thinking olive oil here.
0: Right, right. you know what, and that's actually not really, it's not pressed, it's like it's tapped. So you can imagine like these three to four meter tall, let's say like ten feet tall barrel, wood barrels, and they're filled with um, fish and salt that have been left to ferment through autolysis, and then there's a tap at the bottom, and then they drain that uh, liquid out through a little, you know, a, a spigot, and that's the first Liquid that comes out. And so, um, fish sauces like Red Boat are 100% of that first liquid. Hmm. And then it's always blended because you've got, you know, one barrel is going to be different from another. And so, the fish sauce maker will then blend the fish sauces to get the right flavor. And then you can also have fish sauces that are diluted with water and blended. And then sometimes there's a touch of sugar in it that still uses some of that first liquid that comes out. And then there's also the fish sauce that comes from adding more salt and then more water, and then it's not as full of umami as the the stuff that's higher grade. And so the the stuff that's lower grade is oftentimes used for cooking.
1: So why is the stuff at the bottom the highest grade?
0: Well, it's the first stuff that comes out. So I've I tasted see. fish sauce right out of the barrel, and it is thick and kind of oily, and it is—it uh, ha- it smells like porcini mushroom.
1: Okay, now now we have to have a pronunciation lesson. I still say pho. I'm not—I'm not supposed to say that. I know it's wrong. So what should I call it? Fal. Okay. Well, that's. That's got about eight syllables in
0: it. No, but it's only got it's only got like three, three. letters, Chris. Okay, three letters. So, so um, the hard part that what's actually kind of tricky is that "pho" has entered the Webster's dictionary, and so that means we don't have to put all the the diacritical marks, the accent marks, on it, and so it appears as "pho," which is like "pho." But in Vietnamese, when you just have P-H-O, that is pronounced fa, And then there are like two more little marks attached to that O, right? And so there's like a little side hook on the O. So that's that pho becomes pho. But then there's a little like squiggly question mark above the O too. So that's where it becomes the interrogative. So if you just remember, like, it's you're always asking a question. Would you like some pho? And if you just say pho, then you'll impress a Vietnamese person. They'll probably, like, you know, love you forever.
1: So, okay, in the North, you're right. It was just, you know, the French, I mean, the French would slaughter beef and the stuff they didn't want, which wasn't much because the French used everything. Uh, you turned into a soup with beef bones and the really tough cuts, some fish sauce. But then during the migration you talked about in the 50s, uh, coming south, then it, it changed. So what what happened when that soup, when pho, came south?
0: Well, when, uh, when
1: pho went south. When pho went south, yes. <laughs> when pho there's went south.
0: There's a book
1: there somewhere, yeah.
0: I know. Uh, when pho went south, it became a little sweeter because Southerners, um, like, actually, like the South in America, too, right? Like a lot of sweet. And so around Saigon, so there's, like, Hanoi-style pho, and then there's Saigon-style pho. So Hanoi-style pho tends to um, be more savory than sweet. And it's very simple. So you've got your cooked meat and maybe your raw meat, um, and we're talking beef here, noodles and broth in a relatively like small bowl, small portions. You get to the south where it's agriculturally richer. And I, as I mentioned earlier, people like to live large. Um, so then the portions got bigger and Things got a little sweeter by the addition of this stuff called Chinese rock sugar, which is, has like molasses in it and honey along with refined sugar. So the overall flavor profile of Saigon style pho is sweet, savory. And then what really, really irks the hardcore Northerners about Southern style pho is that All those garnishes that we're used to seeing, you know, the bean sprouts, the Thai basil, the limes. The northerners say, why do the southerners put all of those foreign vegetables into Mm. our pho? They just like things so darn sweet. And then the southerners love to say, you get so little in the north and also their broth is so bland.
1: I'm going to quote from you. Uh, I love okay. this quote. In the past, there have been Vietnamese books that took this really gauzy look at the Vietnamese experience, but the ingredient list were so long that my eyes glazed over. So who is making all this fancy food? I don't cook it. I'm not seeing it in cookbooks that go back to the 1940s. So this is all, quote unquote, nonsense. Um, I love that quote.
0: I think that a lot of the cookbooks that had been written about Vietnamese food tended to make it so to make all of like these sort of um, specialty dishes. And, you know, there was always like the layers upon layers of ingredients. But if you're just trying to put on a, a meal together for a weeknight, you don't have time to make that stock, okay? You're using water because that's what Vietnamese cooks do. And when I took a look at those books, I was like, this is not the way my family eats and this is not how I cook and it sort of does a disservice to people who are trying to learn an unfamiliar cuisine because all of a sudden the ingredient lists are so darn long that you feel tired just looking at at the list right. you know <laughs> and and huh. can we just pare it down to the essentials and you don't need all of those you know things like Fried shallot. It's like adding bacon bits <laughs> to food, <to, laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Uh, let, let's do some more word games here. So so banh mi, originally was banh tay. I don't know if I pronounced that right, T-A-Y. You, you translate that Western things made with dough. And then right. banh bon mi was bread for us. Could you just tell us that story?
0: Yes. So originally when the, you know, when the French arrived, they brought the baguette culture And Vietnamese cooks, you know, the bakers, somehow were able to replicate baguette in a very, very humid environment and um, with probably pretty poor wheat flour. And they said, okay, we're going to take this foreign bread and butter is very expensive, So, but we can make mayonnaise (laughs) because it just takes eggs and oil and a little acid. Right, we can do that. And then we're going to, like, put some pickles in there. And, boy, chashu pork, you know, from the Chinese sounds really great. Add that in there, too. Mm. And then we'll put, like, some Vietnamese charcuterie that we, like, cook in banana leaves. Ooh, and then cucumber, chili, cilantro. All that together becomes becomes a, a banh mi sandwich.
1: Uh, you told the charming story of a woman with a street fender with a cart, and she made fried eggs on a charcoal brazier and in a cart and and sold her sandwiches. Could you just talk about that? She only worked till about nine in the morning and it just sounded like the perfect food cart. Or my idea of the perfect
0: food Me too. So a few years ago, I was in Saigon. And and when I go to Saigon, I like to stay in like strange little neighborhood places. So we rented this um, apartment. And outside the apartment on the street was this woman who every morning she set up shop, this little cart, and she had this charcoal razier. And she would make breakfast sandwiches. And then one day I stopped by and I started talking to her. And she told me that she made all of her uh, filling ingredients herself. She proudly said, um, Look, you know, my husband, he has a good job and I have kids in college, but I just really love bun mi. And so I decided to start this cart a few years ago. Hmm. And I said, So why do you have a charcoal brazier? Instead of like a butane burner that I see so many other um, banh mi carts have. And she said it just allows her to very easily warm the bread. So she has the brazier in the bottom of her cart. And in the shelf, she has a little wooden rack. And so she slides the bread in the wooden rack. The heat from the brazier goes up and warms her bread so that the bread can be crispy. Hmm. And it was absolutely brilliant.
1: The last question I have is this. I mean, you say Vietnamese cooking, it's very adaptive. So what is it like to be from a culture that is very adaptive in food and progressive is that how you cook and think about food? In other words, you don't keep going back to something that's unchanging. The change is definitely part of your, your culinary landscape.
0: That's a really kind of slippery slope to, to wander down with regard to Vietnamese food. And the people love to say, well, this is right and that is wrong. But for me, it's like, well, does that taste right? Because there is a certain synergy of of the ingredients that happens that makes a dish pho or a bun mi, what tastes like a good bun mi. And if you tinker too much with it, then it loses that synergy and you eat it and you go, well, that just kind of lost the soul of the dish. Hmm. It's just constantly evolving because Vietnamese people like to create things all the time. For me, it's always like trying to catch up. And some things work. And some things just don't. I just I think authenticity comes from the ability to cook well and to cook with intent. And in Vietnamese cooking, we have um, we describe good cooking, thoughtful cooking, as cooking that is um, kheo, k h e o. So if you're kheo, if you're thoughtful, if you're cooking with intent and care, then you're a good cook. And I think that um, for me would mean that you're an authentic cook, and you know what you're doing, and the flavors will be good.
1: You know, what was interesting when you were just talking, I was thinking that those words could have come out of Julia Child's mouth, right? Well, I mean, it,
0: thank you. It,
1: it, in a way. <laughs> I'm, well, no, I mean, cooking with intent and in things, there is an authenticity to food being prepared in a certain way. Uh, this has been a pleasure, Andrew. really. Thank you for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me and having this wonderful conversation.
1: My visit to Vietnam included the overnight train to Sapa. This is a northern mountain town about 5,000 feet above sea level. Our family walked from village to village. Wood smoke, pigs, chickens, motorbikes with a half dozen family members on back the deep darkness inside the dwellings, and I also remember a sea of red headscarves worn by the Hmong women. And then, of course, the resorts at China Beach, the crowded streets of Hanoi, and then finally the sophisticated, high-energy feel of Saigon. Maybe countries are just collections of different places with different people who simply eat different foods. Vietnam or America, a country is just where you happen to be at a particular moment in time. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio coming up after the break. Is breakfast really part of a healthy diet? And now my new favorite pan, carbon steel. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
3: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like,
5: pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white and it's just perfection.
3: My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an alagash white. you don't need to dress it up. There's something about
4: muscles with beer, especially the white that is just so good.
3: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant but then also with like spicy Indian food. so I think it's just really versatile.
5: It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with allagash white.
6: (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of allagash white to it.
4: A lot of people use Allagash White in, like, a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add, like, a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer.
5: We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think...
3: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
2: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: Welcome back to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Conventional wisdom says that breakfast is the cornerstone of a healthy diet. It's the best way to start the day. Dr. Aaron Carroll, however, a regular contributor to The New York Times, has looked at this dietary advice and offers a different point of view. Welcome to Milk Street. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, I spent summers in Vermont growing up, and uh, my mother always emphasized the early hearty breakfast since I was going to be outside working all day. And I still believe that. Perhaps you have a different point of view here.
6: Well, I do. And again, it's going to be similar to, I think, some of the other things we've discussed before. It's If you're hungry, by all means, eat the hearty breakfast. If you feel that you need it and that it does something good for you, by all means, have it. The thing is, not everyone does. And the idea that we need to force breakfast upon people who might not be hungry or to argue that it is somehow more important than other meals when you might be hungrier, there's just no science or evidence for that at all.
1: So the concept early on was that you need calories to start the day. How do you know whether a big breakfast is good or bad for you? What's the science here?
6: Well, so let's think about it. What are the metrics that we might care about? You know, the big metric that everybody talks about these days is obesity. Somehow that if we don't eat breakfast, that somehow that actually screws up the way that we eat all day. And Many people argue that if you don't eat breakfast, that that actually is associated with increased rates of obesity. That somehow that's when we should be eating. And if that's when we do eat, it's generally healthy for us and we have a more natural or healthier body weight. That, that science is just not true. There have been many, many, many studies, randomized controlled trials, good studies, which show that there really is no link between eating breakfast and obesity. You can find research that says what many people believe that skipping breakfast is bad for you in the sense that you're more likely to gain weight and have an unhealthy body weight. But a lot of that research is flawed, and a lot of that research has a huge amount of conflicts of interest associated with it. It's being put forward by groups that are very heavily tied to the food or breakfast industry. Another metric we might pick is, you know, a lot of people will say that kids will do better in school that they function better, that they're more able to pay attention, that they have higher academic achievement if they eat breakfast. And they will point to studies that show that giving kids breakfast results in them doing better at school and even having better behavior. What's wrong with that research is it's almost all entirely conducted using school breakfast programs, going after poor kids who are hungry, who are already qualified for school lunches. And what that is showing us is that hungry kids do better when we feed them breakfast. And I have no problem with that at all. But that's a far cry from saying that we should make kids who might not be hungry eat breakfast or the breakfast is somehow more important than any other meal. And so when we talk about these hard metrics, the things that people think might be a good reason to eat breakfast, research shows that there really is no causal pathway that forcing children or forcing adults to eat breakfast winds up with one of these good outcomes.
1: What's the philosophy, the theory behind the concept of starting with a good breakfast? Forgetting about whether there's data, what was the basic concept behind it to start with? Well, I mean, you know,
6: some people will think that, oh, my gosh, you've been starving all night, and therefore your body is super hungry or is lacking something, and that if you don't eat breakfast, that you can't get a good start. It kickstarts everything. It gets it going. Well, most people are perfectly capable of storing up the nutrients that they need overnight. No one goes into starvation in the short time, especially in the (laughs) United States of America today, the short time between when we stop eating at night and when we might start eating the next day. We're all going to do fine. if we don't eat a huge breakfast. If we don't eat a good breakfast, then we eat an even bigger lunch than we might otherwise, and that's terrible for us. Or we might eat even a bigger dinner, or that we might wind up, God forbid, eating at night, which some people believe is linked to obesity and really isn't. The truth is that, you know, we have to remember we evolve from animals who don't eat three square meals a day. That's not necessarily the way we were designed. There's nothing better about that. That's a societal construct that we invented far, far, far later than sort of any other adaptations that might have come along to tell us when or when not we should be
1: eating. I don't think you're going to get a call to be the spokesperson for the Kellogg Company anytime no. soon, do you? absolutely not.
6: Yeah. And although <laughs> you'd be amazed because when I was going through a lot of the research from my piece in the New York Times, you'd be blown away by how much of the research is funded by industry. I mean, Kellogg funded a very highly cited article that tries to argue that cereal for breakfast is associated with being thinner. The Quaker Oats Center of Excellence, which is part of (laughs) Pepsi, they financed another trial which looked at uh, whether eating oatmeal or frosted cornflakes in a highly controlled setting would result in weight loss or cholesterol changes. I mean, the food industry, especially the breakfast industry, is really involved in trying to make you believe that you are going to be less than you could be if you skip breakfast. So eat when you're hungry. Yes, exactly. It's like, or if you feel like it's doing good for you. Actually, this article came out of an argument that my wife and I were having over and over and over again because I skip breakfast every day. I just drink coffee. It's all I want. And she eats a hearty breakfast every morning. Two of our children are like her and want that breakfast, but our oldest child is more like me and just isn't hungry in the morning. And she would try to make him eat breakfast or argue that if he didn't, that he wouldn't do as well in school or that he couldn't pay attention. And and we would have, I mean, not angry, but we would have debates about whether or not we should be forcing... Jacob to eat breakfast and that's where a lot of this came from was I wanted to look and see is there really good evidence behind this and it turns out there really isn't there's no good evidence for this at all
1: I'm not sure it's good for marriage if one of the partners has a public platform to <laughs> argue against the we, spouse's point of view you know what I mean we've <laughs> you know sometimes she wins you know sometimes
6: the evidence supports her but you know it, we try both at least I try to try to bring evidence and data to my arguments and I will concede if those say that what I am saying is
1: wrong Dr. Aaron Carroll, once again, you shake up the world of food. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes and also at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take a few cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, welcome to Milk Street. Uh, Ready to take calls?
4: I am ready.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Hi, this is... Fiona from Jersey City, New Jersey.
1: How can we help you?
4: Um, So we have a fairly small kitchen,
7: limited cabinet space, and I was wondering if I really need to keep both dark brown and light brown sugar, or if I can maybe mix dark brown with regular granulated sugar instead of having light brown
1: sugar. Well, first of all, I learned a few years ago, Sarah, maybe you know if this is true. I thought that light and dark brown sugar just weren't as refined as white sugar, but I think it's just white sugar and they put molasses back Correct. into it. Correct. I think light's around 3%, is around 6%. My answer would be you can pretty much use substitute inter- light or dark. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't switch white for light, but light or dark are pretty much the same right. thing,
4: right? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And also, these days, there's a fad. It's like more flavor is better. And mm-hmm. so the dark brown has more molasses, which is going to have more depth of flavor. I would just get dark brown and use it for everything. Okay, so just stitch the light brown in. Well, up, don't pitch it. Use it up. Don't waste anything. <laughs> yeah. But certainly, just, you know, if you want to have just one, that's what I would do. And by the way, I'd keep it in the fridge because beca- oh, okay. it
1: hardens. The little brown sugar bears work, you know, about those things? No, the, what's the, that? Those are the little pottery things in the shape of a little bear and you soak it. And yeah, you put it in one the of bag in
4: the shape of a muffin.
1: Yeah, actually, it, it actually eventually works.
4: Eventually that seems to dry out too. So No, no it does,
1: but you have to keep doing it. But it works. Yeah, yeah.
4: That sounds like work. Isn't it just easier to put the box in the fridge? I
1: can't believe I'm sitting here saying something's really cute. <laughs>
4: I know. It's kind of like, Chris, really? You have little bears uh, in have, your cupboard? I, I have, don't know. I
1: have little pottery so I'm bears. I'm something new about I, you. I love my little pottery bears. Mm-hmm. No, they okay. actually do work. If you put them in the fridge, does it keep it soft the whole time?
4: The box? Yes, yeah. it absolutely does. It keeps it This fresh. is
1: so upsetting. I have to get rid of my bears now. I'm it's sorry. Like, I'm oh, sorry. Well, You could use okay. them as little, you know, art Paper d'ar around
4: the house. You know. Weights.
1: Okay. So light or dark doesn't really matter.
4: I know. Bakers okay. are probably tearing their hair out hearing us say that. You know, neither one of us is a professional baker, but that's my
1: personal yeah, opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There you go. Thank you for calling. Thank we you, Violet. It. Thank you. Yep. Take, <laughs> Take
5: care. care.
1: Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: I'm Diana Burke.
1: Hi, Diana. Where are you calling from?
7: Norwich, Illinois, Chicago.
1: How Can we help you?
7: Um, Well, I have a question. I make a latte every morning, and I use 2% milk in a handheld frother. And occasionally, two, three times a year, I get a gallon of milk that won't froth. And the technique is always the same. The temperature, there's no variable in the recipe. And I wondered why that is that the milk won't froth.
1: You said you're using 2% milk? Yes. You know, I find, and I think you may agree, 2% milk actually frosts better than whole milk. It's not supposed to, but it it seems to hold a stable foam better. The other thing I did is went out about four years ago and bought one of those canister electric foamers where you just put it in the thing and then put the top on and it does it by itself, has a little timer. And I find those work better than the handheld.
4: And that heats up.
1: Yeah, it heats it up and it has little things inside the twirl around. I
4: just saw that the other day. A friend yeah. of mine had it. I was like, wow, that is amazing. She took the lid off. It was so foamy. Are they expensive? Do you know?
1: Uh, the cheaper ones, the 35 or $40, bucks. i have always found that works.
4: One of the key things here is temperature, isn't it? That the milk has to be cold when you start?
1: When you get a carton of milk, you're always doing it the same way, so it's coming right out of the fridge, right?
7: I heat the
4: milk up. I do it four minutes on
7: number two on my burner, so it's always the same. It'll last for that one gallon of milk, and then when I open a fresh gallon of milk, everything is fine. It froths, it holds the foam, and it it stays lifted, and it just seems to be the milk itself and not necessarily the technique. At first, I thought maybe the batteries or whatever, but that's not the case. It's just the milk itself.
1: What's the expire date on the milk you buy, like six weeks out, or is this stuff...
7: You know, I buy milk, like, every week, and it's fresh milk. And the reason I asked you this is because I know you like to answer these sort of science questions, and I thought this might be one I don't know.
4: You know, I love foam milk, and my daughter works at a restaurant now, and part of her job is being a barista. So I've asked her recently what's the most important thing. She said, well, the milk really has to be cold when you start. Have you ever tried foaming it and then heating it? No. No. Why don't, you no. can, why don't you try it once, although I think I'd opt for that little electric jammy that you just plug in.
1: For 40 bucks. you just pour it in, put the top on, put the plunger down, and come back in two minutes. It's my fail-safe. friend.
4: My yeah. friend swears by yeah. it, and I saw the phone the other day. I was like, it's oh, ama- my God. Yeah.
1: So the two or three times a year it doesn't work. Is the milk close to expire when this happens, or is it the first batch out of the carton?
7: First batch out of the gallon. So it just seems to me that it's the milk, and I understand you saying it, because everybody tells me it should be cold, but I've been doing this for like five years, and the warm milk, it's not hot, it's just warm, but it froths beautifully. It seems to be the milk.
4: Jeez, I wonder what deteriorates, because you say that when you first do it, it's good, as it gets older, it's not.
1: Or maybe it's really old milk that they re-stamped. <laughs>
4: Oh, That's always my cons- theory. Let's start a conspiracy no, it's theory like
1: here. Eggs. Don't, don't they like take him out and then they put him in new cartons with a new date and put them back in the... No. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. That would be so great if
4: that true. No, no. That would be terrible.
1: <laughs> I guess the answer is we have no idea.
4: So sorry.
1: 40 bucks, an espresso. What? There's about what? 10 different models. But
4: please, by. do it for me once. Just try it cold foaming it and then heat it and see what happens.
1: Okay. Diane, thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. Take this care. This
4: has been wonderful. Thank,
7: thank you. you.
1: Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street Kitchen. How can we help you? This is
7: Chris Plusky from Pittsburgh, and I have a question about olive oil. Okay. It seems like every time I get a bottle of olive oil, and I use it relatively frequently, it goes rancid before the bottle's empty. And my question is, should I keep it in the refrigerator and then have to bring it out beforehand so that it would be liquefied to use it? How can I keep it fresh?
1: Where do you keep it that now? was That would be my question, too. Is it sitting right by the stove? <laughs> Yeah, well, it is sitting by this time. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, uh, there we are. Actually, I oh. used to do that too. Yeah, the problem is it'll heat up and that's not good. I would keep it in a quote unquote cool, dark place. Also, I'm going to give a product recommendation. Okay. Rachel Ray makes this sort of very heavy teardrop shaped olive oil container with, oh, a, yeah. with a tiny little spout at the end, which has a little hinged lid on it. And uh, I find that it's very stable, holds a lot of olive oil, no light's going to get in. The hole at the end is very small. The spout's very tiny, so you're not going to get a lot of oxidation. You don't have to use that one. you yeah. Use something like that, but keep that bottle out of the light and out of the heat. Yeah, right? so
4: the enemies of olive oil are oxygen, light, right. and heat. So how do you feel about keeping it in the fridge, though, Chris? No. I no. know olive oil producers would say that's an absolute no-no.
1: No, it's going to get kind of cloudy and nasty. And
4: well, it does. But, you know, what somebody had suggested was that keep it in the fridge, you know, in a way that you could spoon some out every time you need it and let just that come to room temperature so the whole bottle doesn't have to go in and out and in and out and in and out.
1: Look, uh, our lives are difficult enough, so I have to, enough. <laughs> t- to think ahead of time. Right. No. I mean, olive oil, you just have to grab it and go.
4: All right. right. No,
1: but are are you good at? No, I got to ask Sarah. Are you good at planning ahead of time? I bet you are. I I'm am. Not,
4: yeah, I no, say. that's one of my specialties. That's my
7: problem. I don't think I'd plan ahead enough. In fact, I actually put this one in the refrigerator because I was going on vacation. And every time I look at it, I think, oh, I have to bring it out so that I can use it.
4: Well, but- I think the best suggestion is to not keep it by the heat source right. and to get yeah. it in something where there's no light, you know, affecting it. And if you can, put it in a cool, dark place. But then again, you yeah. have to go grab it from a cool, dark place. So
1: I would buy the... Rachel ratio. The, the Rachel thing is yeah. actually, Why not? it's really well made. Yeah, It's uh-huh. actually one of those few things that really does the job. Right, so that's I, great. I, I'm all for it. I'm
4: going to check that out, too.
1: Yeah, it's a good product. So anyway, yeah. there you go. Okay, okay. well, thank you, Thanks. Chris. I appreciate yeah. the information. Take sure. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, answer, give us a call, 1-855-4BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Coming up, we visit a refugee camp in Jordan where a Syrian family established a very successful bakery. I also reveal why carbon steel is the new nonstick, and it's also my new favorite pan. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed.
6: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
7: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Welcome back to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street
3: Radio. <laughs>
1: Uh, We get up every morning, like at 6 o'clock, and it's true that we escape the situation we're in. We come here to work, but we have to continue uh, our life for the sake of our kids and the sake of our family. What you just heard is a Syrian pastry maker speaking with a translator to Amy Gutman. Amy Gutman, a documentary filmmaker and reporter, traveled to one of the world's largest refugee camps, sprawling over three square miles and located just over the border from Syria and Jordan. The refugees live in corrugated containers, but life not only goes on, it seems to be thriving with over 3,000 startup businesses located inside the camp. I started by asking Amy about the history and location of this refugee camp. So give us the uh, 60-second summary of how things got started in Syria in 2011.
5: Well, uh, in Zaatari, which is the largest Syrian refugee camp in the world, um, and that's the camp that I visited, it's about an hour north of the capital of Amman. Refugees first started crossing the border there from nearby towns. And these nearby towns had... Interesting trade relationships with Jordanians, because obviously they had good proximity, there were goods that you couldn't get in Syria, or perhaps that you couldn't get in Jordan. So there were many business opportunities and relationships, even tribal relationships, that go back decades between between Jordanians and Syrians, particularly in these border towns. So it was quite natural for Syrians to cross the border over into Jordan, where this camp was set up. Life there has changed a lot uh, in the last four or five years. So originally, there was a lot of talk about Zaatari in particular, being a very difficult place for refugees to live. There were tents, there weren't proper structures for people to live in. There really was very little infrastructure. Now, this refugee camp Zatari, is considered a model for future refugee camps, because it's become its own little city. It's got its own economy with 3,000 different businesses that have all been set up by Syrian refugees living inside the camp. And they've got so much going on there. They've got ice cream stands, they have You know, corner shops. They have bridal rental shops selling makeup and costume jewelry. They have hair salons. They have pizza delivery places. They've even got a (laughs) sit-down restaurant and a garden shop. So you know, life life has had to go on there.
1: You did a food tour of the camp. So you know, what what could you buy if you wanted to eat well in the camp? What's available?
5: Okay, so um, in the camp, we started out with a place called Farouk Sweets, and that's where a gentleman named Abu al-Meneh M. Abu Husseini, he and his four brothers run this shop. And for them, it's not only a successful business, but it's it's a way to really uh, escape the situation they're living in. They get up at 6 a.m. every day and they say it's It's not only something to do, it's something that they're passionate about and sort of keeps them going and and reminds them of home. They have customers who come in all the time. They supply trays and trays of baklava and other sticky, syrupy Middle Eastern sweets for both Syrian and Jordanian Mm -hmm. weddings. So they're providing sweets to people who both live in the camp and also people who live outside the camp. So some Jordanians, Will send cars, you know, the one-hour journey from Amman to Zatari to the gates of the refugee camp to go collect sweets from mm. from Farouk Sweets,
1: and and they have more than one branch, and they have a lot of family members working there, right?
5: They do. So they're they have four or five branches within the camp now, and and that is basically providing everything that they need for a family an extended family of twenty-five people. So they're very self-sufficient. These are people who are not content to just sit around with nothing to do. So many of them start businesses, not necessarily because they're so desperate to make money, but they're so desperate to be productive with their day. They don't want to sit around waiting, you know, waiting for the war to end.
1: So pizza, Farouk sweets, the pastry shop, ice cream, I think you said there was ice cream there.
5: Yeah, well, that's, that's outside of the refugee camp. So we covered entrepreneurship both in the camp and outside the camp because it's important to note that not every Syrian in Jordan lives in a refugee camp and not all of them really consider themselves or see themselves as refugees. So, for example, Mo Gashim is a 35-year-old tech entrepreneur who had a very successful web design and consultancy business in his hometown of Aleppo before the war began. He actually had to lay off his 12 employees. At the same time, uh, Jordan had just launched their first tech incubator and accelerator. So Mo came to Amman for what he thought was just gonna be a week to do this program. And four and a half years later, he has a business of 35 employees, 27 of which are Jordanians.
1: When I came to Jordan, I realized it's not that much of an appetite for someone to start a business. They love to, to study more, do more of uh, of the academic study than maybe work in a company. But in Syria, it's very normal that someone might, might leave university and start a business.
5: So Mo has seen a lot of changes occur in Jordan since he's been there, and one of them has been on this... Busy boulevard called Medina Street. And Medina Street basically takes you in and out of Amman. And there's about a a one mile stretch of the road which had vacant shops before. And now, over the past four and a half years, Mo, who is a passionate foodie, has seen it turn into this hub of Syrian restaurants from shawarma shops to pastry shops to uh, famous ice cream, Syrian ice cream shops. and, and, and it's an incredible sight.
1: Do a lot of the ingredients used in these shops come from Iraq or come from Lebanon, or is it all grown locally? And, and what kind of what kind of ingredients are we talking about? If you went into buy food to cook, what, what is it that's going to be available to you, either in Amman or in, in the camp?
5: I mean, I mean it's, it's basically Middle Eastern food. So it's food that you would find in Israel. It's food that you would find in Lebanon, across the borders of, of the Middle East. So we're talking about things like pomegranates, uh, eggplants, uh, peppers, lamb, chicken, these are all things that are indigenous to the area. Now, Jordan does import a lot. And interestingly, that's what used to drive Jordanians to Syria at weekends. It was a very, very popular thing to do before the war. Jordanians would drive the four hours from Amman to Damascus because, A, prices of goods were cheaper. But Jordanians would also make that four-hour drive on their weekends for the food in Damascus, for things like ice cream. There's a 200-year-old ice cream uh, recipe that's that's produced in a shop called Backdash. And it's sort of a, a, a sticky vanilla, more of a milk flavor than vanilla flavor, that's roll, it's pounded and it's rolled in uh, cashews and pistachios.
1: <laughs> now, now you've really got my interest. So th- these are scoops of ice cream that are then covered with pistachios, et cetera, or, or are they rolled up? sort of rolls of ice cream.
5: So picture a vat of vanilla ice cream Mm -hmm. that actually tastes more milky than vanilla. And with that vat of ice cream, they take what looks like a rolling pin and they pound it. And actually when we were there, they, they were pounding it to the beat of a sort of impromptu orchestra that broke out where hmm. these guys who worked in the shop were taking their spades that they scooped the ice cream with and they were taking the pounding uh, tools and they were taking spoons to bowls and um, it was a lovely, lovely impromptu orchestra that they were playing. So they pound this ice cream to get it, I guess, more malleable. Because it's sort of gummy in texture. And then when you order your scoop, that scoop that you're going to eat is then rolled in cashews and pistachios and then presented to you in a cup. It's absolutely wonderful. It's a very distinct but lovely flavor.
1: You had mentioned shawarma shops. Could you just describe what the shops are like and and, and the different kinds of shawarma you can get?
5: Yeah, so there's typically lamb and chicken shawarma. We, We would call them a kebab shop. So there are these hunks of meat that spend all day, or at least a few hours, at at a minimum, roasting on these spits. And as they roast, the natural juices and flavors, um, because they've, they've been spiced with cardamom and some other local spices, drips down and coats the rest of the meat with this wonderful flavor. So Mo took me to this authentic Syrian shawarma shop, and he told me that the way you can identify proper Syrian shawarma, the way that it's different from anywhere else in the Middle East, is because they put on top of the garlic sauce, which typically goes on top of the sandwich, they put a little extra piece of meat, whether it's the chicken you've ordered or the lamb you've ordered. And he likes to say that, you know, this is because the Syrians are so hospitable that they, they just want you to have more and more and more.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. This week's cooking lesson from Milk Street Kitchen is all about nonstick skillets. You know, for years I've used a chemically coated skillet for eggs and shrimp and other things. And I do have a question, which is that when that coating rubs off, and it always does, where does it go? Does it go into your food? Does it go into my stomach? So I wanted a natural, long-term, heavy-duty alternative. So we turned to the carbon steel pan. It's a much smoother surface than cast iron. It's often used in restaurants as a heavy duty nonstick skillet. We bought a couple, we brought them back. We washed them with hot soapy water to get the coating of oil off. And then you have to season the pan, much like cast iron. You heat some oil in the pan, get it to smoking, and rub it into the pan. And that's what we're gonna do now. So we're gonna turn it on to heat, heat it up. I'm gonna take about a tablespoon. You can use canola oil, doesn't have to be expensive. Put it in the pan and you really want to get the oil up to the smoking point point. and the reason is if you get it to the right temperature, it polymerizes, it actually turns into a different chemical compound which really gives a great coating to the pan so the food never touches the pan, it just touches that polymer coating. Okay, now you're starting to see it smoke which means it's about 380, 400 degrees. Now, I'm just going to take it off the heat, um, and there's a good smoke now. And a big wad of paper towels is good to use an oven mitt. And I'm just going to go in and rub that oil into the pan. And also, you can see the pan will start to darken. So there you go. Okay. Now I'm going to let this pan cool down for a few minutes. And I'm going to turn the heat off, let the pan cool down. It's really good to do this not three or four times as manufacturers often suggest, but do it eight to 10 times. You can do it here and there over the course of a day or two and you get a nice coating. The pan will turn black, it starts out being light colored and that's exactly what you want. So the next thing we did was to test the process and we scrambled some eggs, that's what always sticks. And it did okay, but the eggs still stuck in places. So we didn't have a true nonstick pan. Well, I got a tip from a friend of mine, Fuchsia Dunlop. She's an expert in Sichuan cooking. When she does a wok, she actually, just before she adds, let's say, the chicken, which will stick, she takes a little bit of cooking oil, throws in the wok, and gets it really smoking and pours it out. In other words, she seasons the pan just before she uses it every time. So we did the same thing here. We had the cold pan, got it smoking, did what I just did now. We'll take the paper towels and go in there and just rub that into the skillet Take that off the heat, let that cool down for about a minute, pour in fresh oil, heat that oil up, and then you start cooking. It turns out that last-minute seasoning makes all the difference in the world. So if you don't want a chemically treated nonstick skillet, buy a carbon steel pan, season it, and just before you use it every time, a little bit of oil to smoking gives you the perfect and natural nonstick skillet. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can hear more of our weekly shows on iTunes also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can also download each week's recipe.
2: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetag. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sidney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.